Well, I'd like to ask you if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, uh, probably a familiar passage in Acts uh, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we're going to begin reading at verse number 6 and we'll read through verse 14. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse number 6. Scripture says, And when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea, and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they... Unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into the upper room, where abode Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotius and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord and prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our service this morning. Lord, we love you and thank you for the opportunity to come here to this place and to these dear people. And uh, Lord, open up the word and share some things about what has been done in Seoul, South Korea. And God, I pray you might fill me now with uh, your power and and, uh, Lord, help me to uh, be a blessing and encouragement uh, to this church. And uh, Lord, may everything that's said and done bring honor and glory to your name. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I think that uh, there are certain passages in the Bible that are seminal passages, and by that, uh, they're key to our understanding of some aspect of the Christian faith. And this is undeniably one of those passages. Uh, I want you to notice the questioning message of the two angels in verse 11. Those angels said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Now, I hope that you understand that that question was rhetorical. There was no answer sufficient to justify their steadfast gazing up at the heavens. And may I say, if at the very moment of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven, it was not a time for the Lord's disciples to have been standing around staring speculatively upward, then how much less ought we to be engaged in fruitless, spiritually unproductive activities that are a waste of our time? Uh, Frankly, and I said this in the uh, Sunday school hour, I believe that we live in the busiest of times that men have known. And yet, for all of our busyness, for all of our um, uh, uh, hustling about here and there, and for our expenditure of money and energy and life, not much 
is being accomplished that eternity will judge to have been worthwhile. I, I, I think that uh, if you ponder on that a while, you'll probably agree with me. We live very busy lives, but how much of what we do is going to matter in the light of eternity? In South Korea, where we live and minister, education is the God of many people. And almost everybody in South Korea uh, will achieve at least a college degree. Many will receive advanced degrees. And, and there are people in Korea that are in their 30s, even in their 40s, and they're still studying. And men may applaud educational accomplishment. Men may highly esteem capitalistic success. And this world certainly does uh, 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 extol those who are gifted in the fine arts or those who may possess athletic talent. But I assure you that eternity will not regard any of those things as having been worthwhile. Heaven's standards are much higher than we suppose. Today, I want us to think about what we ought to be engaged in doing as disciples of Christ. I want us to consider what is the thing that Scripture would say that we as a church and as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to focus our energies, our money, our time, our talent on. And I think that this passage of Scripture can help us with that. I want you to notice verse number 6. Verse number 6 begins, When they therefore were come together. Do you see that the first thing that our text tells us about how we should be spending our time, what it is saying? It's saying that we should be assembling together. Now, I think you know that that word assemble is the Greek word, or at least a form of the Greek word ekklesia. We should be assembling together as a church. Baptist people believe strongly in the local church. We believe that the focus of our Christian lives ought to be in the visible local church. Now, I'm, I'm an old-fashioned Baptist, and that is something that I will never apologize for being. Now, I don't hate Protestants or anyone else, but I'm not going to be pressured into believing what the Bible doesn't teach. I'm bothered by what I see as an increasing emphasis away from the local church. I see many Baptist churches now that are taking the name Baptist off their church. I, I wonder why it is that only Baptists are being pressured into apologizing uh, for being what we are. 
Presbyterians and Methodists and Charismatics and Roman Catholics never seem to change the names on their churches. But I can tell you the names of at least 20 well-known Baptist churches that have taken the name Baptist off their church. And uh, I suppose that may be in part because some have, by a terrible testimony, thrown up a lot of mud on the fine Baptist name. But it doesn't mean that we should apologize for being what we are. Instead, I think that we should overcome their bad testimony by our good testimony. I've always admired Trinity Baptist Church. The uh, effort that's put into doing the Harvest Fest is a pretty considerable thing. And somebody speaking from the outside, I know what it is to put on an event, but to host an event with a thousand teenagers, sometimes just taking care of the teenagers in our own church is a headache. But bringing in a thousand teenagers from all over the Midwest, that is something. And putting on an event that every year sees young people saved and renewing, making commitments to serve the Lord. Uh, I praise God for that. In many churches, there's not much happening. People are spending their time in areas of life outside the church. Their kids do do baseball or, or soccer or they're involved in music programs or in the public schools. I went to public school. But, beloved, our focus as disciples of Christ, as Baptist people, ought to be in our church. That's where our focus should be. I don't believe that God ever intended Christians to be hermits or loners. He did not intend for New Testament churches to degenerate into uh, exclusive home Bible study groups who exist for the sole purpose of keeping themselves separate from any corrupting influence. Somebody gave me a book on raising children and said, oh, you should read this book. It's a wonderful book. And I didn't read but a few dozen pages into that book and it became clear that the authors of that book were exceedingly anti-church. And the author of that book rejoiced when he was able to convince somebody to stop attending church and remove their children from any corrupting influence. That's not my kind of book. I, I don't want to build a compound with high walls and put my family in there so that nothing corrupting can touch them. I want my family to go out into the world and influence people for Jesus Christ. And that's what a church ought to do. Praise God, we don't have to go to Idaho and find some secluded valley and build ourselves a compound and ride out the coming storm. I think, uh, you know... I always got a kick out of those programs, the the preppers, and how people would practice their bug outs and stuff like that. 
people have asked me, Brother Rootman, aren't you afraid because you're in Korea? And that guy up north has got his finger over the button. Never really thought about it. I don't care. Until the missiles start flying, I'm just going to keep preaching. I'm just going to keep on telling people that Jesus Christ can save their soul. That He provided the penalty of their sins when He died on the cross of Calvary. And I encourage my church members not to be afraid. Because if the missiles come towards Seoul, we just get to heaven before the people in America. That's all. I think that not going to church is certainly a sin that will put a Christian in danger of divine chastening and it damages that Christian's testimony and effectiveness for Christ. It also deprives their church of the absent Christian spiritual gifts. Some are under the delusion that they uh, might actually be able to have church at their home when their family gets together and reads the Bible. And usually the text that's cited as a justification for this wrong idea is Matthew 18.20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. But my friends, that verse is perhaps the most misused verse by Christian people today in the Bible. That verse deals with church discipline. Where two or three are gathered together in opposition to error, God is in the midst of them. If two or three people are gathered in defiance of His word and His will, it is outrageous to suppose that Jesus will be in the midst of them. Great things can happen when a church has come together. In the book of Acts, we can see that God's Holy Spirit fell on that church when they came together after meeting in prayer and supplication for ten days. For ten consecutive days, the apostles and the women and the Brethren of Christ, 120 met in that upper room for 10 days. For 10 days consecutively, they prayed and the power of God fell on them and thousands were saved. Thousands of lost sinners came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Mighty miracles and works were accomplished when that church came together and prayed. And each New Testament church today can have that same power if we'll seek it. If we'll get on our faces before God and stay there. Beloved, a church is like a body. The Bible repeatedly tells us that. And a body has its various parts and the more the parts are missing on a body, the worse it functions. I know a little bit about that. 
In 2013, I got to where I couldn't lift my, my left arm. And I, was, I play a clarinet in, a, in an ensemble uh, that plays classical music in, in Seoul, Korea. And uh, the fellow next to me is a hematologist. He gives people bone marrow transplants. I said to him, Doc, if I can't lift my, my arm and play the top notes of my clarinet anymore, I, I said, uh, who do you think I should go see? And he gave me the name of a certain uh, orthopedic doctor, and I had to go get uh, uh, shoulder surgery. And uh, so I'm in a brace like this. And that was around uh, Thanksgiving uh, 2013. And uh, a few weeks later in December, I was passing out gospel tracts, and I stepped on a spot of black ice and did one of these things and tore all four ligaments in my right knee that had had the previous surgery two times. And I blew it out wrestling in college. And uh, the doctors were like, there's nothing we can do with that knee. And so they had to do a, a total knee replacement. I had that in January 2014. And now when I, now when I stand up to preach and... Uh, uh, if I preach for 30 or 40 minutes, walking down those stairs is not much fun. How many have had knee replacement surgery? There's a few hands raised up. How many on their right knee? How many of you enjoy driving after having your right knee replaced? It's, that's not much fun either. And uh, tomorrow, we head down to Phoenix. So I have to drive all the way to Phoenix. I can tell you that when a body loses its parts, it does not perform as good. Back when I had all my parts in 1998, I won the North Carolina State Powerlifting Championships and finished in fifth place at the U.S. National Championships. And now I have trouble walking sometimes many churches that have lost members just can't perform the same beloved are you committed to making this church a healthy optimally functioning body the more faithfully you participate in the services and ministry of this church, the more this church can do for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the evangelization of the lost. But the less that you're involved, the less effective this church becomes as a body of Christ in this area. The first thing, that Christians ought to do, according to this passage of Scripture, is to be faithful in the assembling of ourselves together. Now, after they were come together, the Lord Jesus promised them in verse 8, that ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Beloved, the the second thing that we should be about is actively seeking to appropriate the power of God's Holy Spirit. 
The first thing that we should be doing is assembling together. But the second thing that we should be doing is just what they did. Trying to appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit of God. We need to be busy about that. There's a a lot of views and thoughts about the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God, and I'm not going to get into all that today. But I would like to say that I do not believe that it is equal to the filling of the Holy Spirit. There are famous Bible teachers, good men like Ari Torrey, and uh, I believe John R. Rice, who taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is simply equated with the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, But that is something that the Bible teaches that we are to seek. Ephesians 5 and verse 18 tells us to be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but to be filled with the Spirit. If we are directed to seek the filling of the Holy Spirit, then that means that we will lack that necessary filling if we do not actively seek it as they sought it. They must have really wanted it because they kept at it for 10 days. I don't know in my lifetime if I've ever heard of a church meeting that lasted 10 consecutive days. But then I also don't know of any church that went out and led 3,000 people to the Lord in one day. The reason so few Christians ever lead a lost soul to Christ, to faith in Christ, is not because sinners today are more hard-hearted than they were back then. The reason is that so few believers are working hard to win souls, and even fewer seek to appropriate the necessary power of God upon their life. I remember, I guess it was probably about 12 years ago, something like that, uh, there was two trains in Los Angeles collided. A freight train and a commuter train. If my memory is correct, around 17 or 18 people were killed, and eventually, after a lot of investigation it was found out that one of the conductors of those train was on his phone during the time of the collision. He was killed, but the records show that he was on his phone and he went through He went through a crossing where he was supposed to slow down and yield to the other train, and as a result, a number of lives were lost. And that reminded me of an illustration that I had read in a sermon by D.L. Moody. Uh, D.L. Moody told of a train wreck that happened in the Chicago area in the 1800s, late 1800s. Again, it was a freight train with a passenger train, and uh, and that resulted, I believe, in well over 100 lives being lost. And D.L. Moody uh, was, uh, was uh, after the trial, there was an inquest to find out uh, uh, whether or not the, uh, 
the man who was on the ground who was supposed to signal uh, the oncoming train to slow down whether or not he had done his job. Because uh, neither of the train engineers survived the crash, so uh, they, they didn't know what happened. But they held the trial, and, and uh, the judge looked at the man. His job was to take a lantern in the evening, and uh, when one train was coming, he was supposed to hold the lantern up in the air and wave the lantern like this to warn the oncoming train that they had to slow down and stop uh, while the other train passed. And the judge looked at the man and he said, Sir, did you do your job? Did you wave your lantern? And the man said, Yes, Your Honor. I took my lantern, I left the shack, I went out and I waved my lantern in the air, but the train didn't stop. Afterwards, D.O. Moody found the man sitting on a park bench nearby and he was weeping. And he said to him, Why are you weeping? Did you tell the judge the truth? And the man looked at Moody and he said, Well, yes, I I told him the truth. I did take my lantern. I did go out there and I waved the lantern and I yelled. But the train went by. He said it went by because I was busy. And I had this to do, and I had that to do, and suddenly I heard the train coming, and I grabbed my lantern, and I went out and waved it, but while I was waving it, I realized I forgot to light it. And there was no fire in the lantern. And the driver of the train couldn't see. And D.O. Moody said, too many Christians are just like that man. They're busy doing this and they're busy doing that. And then when they go and serve the Lord, it's like they're taking a lantern and waving it. But there's no fire inside of it. They're missing that necessary power from the Holy Spirit of God. Because they didn't take time to light that fire. Listen, we don't light the fire of God, but we got to take the time to make sure we have the Holy Spirit empowering what we do. Or we're just like that guy waving an unlit lantern. You know, those who are without the power of God are often very happy and content. But those without the power never accomplish much for God. May God have mercy on us if we never do anything lasting for Him and are content. God's orders are that we be the witnesses for Christ both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. 
And it is significant that Scripture says both. It means our obligation is to be a witness for Christ in our own Jerusalem, while at the same time also being His witness in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. But we can't do any of that without His power. Beloved, that God's will is not done without God's power and without obedience to His work. That's what world missions is about. Only by supporting missionaries around the world can a church even begin to think that it is in obedience in regard to the Great Commission. But no matter how many missionaries a church supports, it is still in disobedience if it is not being an effective witness in its own Jerusalem and if it does not appropriate the power of God. Beloved, I believe that this passage teaches the need for Christian people to first assemble together and then to appropriate the power of God. But that's not all. I see one more thing. And then we can go eat. Amen? The final thing that we ought to be about as disciples of Christ is implied in verse number 11. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Here we find the promise of our Lord's return. Does that not suggest how important it is for us to anticipate his return? Now, I'm, I'm not talking about trying to decode the Bible or to predict a date for the rapture of Christ or the return of Christ. Trying to do that is foolishness and it's disobedient to the Word of God. But from Matthew chapter 25, we can learn that it is our solemn obligation to both watch and occupy. To watch means to be faithful to our Lord's expectations for us. And the parable of the faithful householder and the ten virgins teaches how important it is to be ready at all times and seasons for the Master will come when we don't expect Him. To occupy means to use what God has lent us. And in the Sunday school hour, I tried to show how that is something that is It ought to be significant in our thinking as disciples of Christ. We must use what God has entrusted to our stewardship to accomplish His will. Think about that other parable in Matthew 25. Do you remember it? The parable of the talents. A lord was going into a foreign country, and he called three stewards, and he gave to the first five talents, and he gave to the second two talents, 
he gave to the other guy one talent. And a long time later, he returned and he called his stewards before him for an accounting. And the first said, Lord, you gave me five talents, here's ten talents. And the other one did the same. The next one, he said, Lord, I've, I've doubled what you lent me. But the third guy said, you know, I, I knew that you were kind of a grouch. So uh, I didn't want to lose what you gave me, so I went and buried it in the earth, and if you want it, you can go dig it up, it's still there. That parable was meant to impress upon Christian people the necessity of occupying, of using what God has given us in a way that pleases God. Beloved, in what ways are you accomplishing God's will? Now, I'm not asking you to justify to me your Christian life because, truthfully, I'm not really that hard to please. I don't have the ability to discern if your, if your service is motivated by love for Christ or by a desire to look good in the eyes of men. I can tell the difference of someone who does nothing from somebody who does something. That's all I can do. But the right thing to do is to be faithful in your church. The right thing to do is to seek the power of God. So that in your service, you'll be effectual. The right thing to do is to remember that Jesus Christ is coming. I like that verse in Hebrews. Let me read it. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, it says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. I think some churches feel like this is a so much the less kind of time. But scripture says so much the more as you see the day approaching. Are you anticipating the return of Jesus Christ? Because it is the blessed hope of the church. I'm just an old-fashioned fundamental Baptist. I still believe in the pre, uh, pre-tribulational rapture of believers. I don't believe that God has appointed us to wrath. I don't think we would have much of a blessed hope if we had to go through the tribulation period. Scripture teaches us 
to watch because we don't know when the Lord is going to return. But in our watching, which involves faithfulness, we also have to occupy, which means to use what God has given us. Listen, the best way that we can use what God has given us is to invest it in souls. Because there isn't a thing in this world that we can take to heaven with us except a friend. Everything else that we have is wood, hand, stubble. But if we'll take what God has given us and use it to win people to Christ, beloved, I believe we're doing what pleases God then. I'm thankful for the opportunity that we've had for almost 21 years to go on behalf of this church to a great city of tens and tens of millions of people and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm sure that you've got other missionaries who are more effective and more uh, better missionaries than we are, but we're thankful that we have been able to go. We're thankful that you have invested a substantial sum of money in our ministry over these years. Let me encourage you to keep doing that for the glory of Christ. Keep meeting together. Be faithful to Him. Keep on Seeking the power of God. And beloved, keep your eyes to the east. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming and we have the opportunity to hear him say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I hope that's the desire of your heart, too. But if it isn't, maybe you should consider some change. If your life hasn't really reflected these values, if your life has been spent on, on trying to you know, get enough money in your retirement so that you'll uh, be comfortable the rest of your life, listen, hey, we don't, our life is but a vapor that appeareth for a moment. May I encourage you instead to pray and seek God's will for your life, for your possessions? Do you remember when Jesus was preaching at the Sea of Galilee and and the great crowds were following him and Peter and Andrew and James and John had been fishing all night and caught nothing and Jesus came along and he stepped into Peter's boat and he said, hey, thrust out a little from land. And Peter had to surrender the use of his boat to the Lord Jesus Christ so that the Word of God could be preached. But not only did did Jesus ask Peter for the use of his possessions, but he also said after he finished preaching, now launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. But Peter was tired. 
He was the professional fisherman and part-time disciple. He said, Lord, we fished all night and taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. I'll tell you what, when we obey God's word, sometimes even with the wrong attitude, God gives us what we don't deserve. Let me encourage you to follow Peter's example. Make your possessions and your time and your talents available to God and see if He won't bless you. See if He won't begin to use you in a way that He's never used you before. To accomplish something that eternity will judge to have been worthwhile. Maybe there's somebody here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. There's never been a time when you called out to Christ to forgive your sins and to save your soul. I was in Bible college and I had a roommate from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And one day he came to me and said, Rob, I'm not saved. He grew up in an independent Baptist church. But he had never asked Jesus to save him. He was 20 years old before he finally bowed his head and trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Maybe there's somebody here that's never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Maybe there's somebody here that's visiting and you've never heard that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, let me tell you the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus died on the cross that you might have life everlasting. And the Bible promises that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You cannot begin to do God's will until you first know Jesus Christ as your Savior. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I think that this passage in Acts chapter 1 shows us how we should focus our life. The world and Satan wants to distract us from the important things. But the important things are right here. Assembling with the church, appropriating his power, and anticipating his return.